0: Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: You say you want to be liberated from these kind of meat headed prejudices of nationalism, but the level of sacrifice required for establishing brotherhood of man on a universal scale doesn't actually seem to interest many of these people. And in fact, Many times it just seems like a cover story for ditching their obligations to their fellow citizens.
2: Hello, Mr. Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Michael Brendan Dougherty. Uh, I've known Michael a long time. He's at the National Review. He's a very thoughtful, populist conservative, somebody I, I always read with a lot of interest and in, in, in admiration. And he's brought out a book. Uh, it's called My Father Left Me Ireland An American Son's Search for Home. And so, obviously, on some level, it's a memoir. And it's not quite that too. It is I was reading it. I, I sat down at a coffee shop to read it. And I have these notes at the beginning and it's like in, in like blue pen. It says it's about fatherhood, identity, nationalism, wonkishness, and individualism. So so these are about big themes and pretty big things that that, that I've been thinking about, the show has been thinking about. And so I wanted to talk to Michael, not just about his experience. But about an argument that is laced through the book and one that I think is laced through our politics and our culture now, that's really about modernity and about whether or not some of the claims made in modernity about the worth of nations and about the value of a kind of ever empirical, perfecting attitude towards culture rather than a, an attitude of, of, of suffering and, and grand mission, whether or not these things are, are robbing us of something or, or bringing us something. Um, I would say this podcast begins a little bit slow, but it gets into, I, I genuinely think, some of the deepest territory of, of any of these conversations I've done and probably has more of my um, worldview clearly articulated in it than, than almost any podcast I've done. So I think this is an interesting lesson. And uh, I think these are these are Topics that, in some ways, it's useful to be able to address through people's life experience because they're topics that, to some of the conversations we have in here, they're hard to address through data. We don't often have a news peg or, or, or an event that lets us discuss modernity or, um, you know, what is the right way to think of the nation or what role has a nation played and so when is it doing something positive for us? And when is it failing us? So I found a lot of value in this conversation. I hope you will too. Um, we're going to do the AMA in a couple of days. So this is the final call I'll make for Ask Me Anything questions. Um, given it's a final call, uh, I'm looking for for some off-the-beaten-path questions, some weirder questions. I appreciate all the great ones you've gotten so far. Um, and so we've gotten a lot of the, you know, what have you changed your mind on? Or how do you prep for podcasts? And these are great questions and I'll I'll answer them. But But go a little weird. Let, let's try to get some stuff in there out of left field. So I'm Ezra Kleinshow at Vox.com. Again, send questions to Ezra Kleinshow at Vox.com and you know be creative. And, and I'll try to be creative in my responses. Um, all that said, here is Michael Brendan Dougherty. Michael Brendan Dougherty, welcome to the podcast.
1: So glad to be here. So one, this book is it's a
2: beautiful book. Um and I've not thank you know you. you're a political writer like me and I think political writing is rarely beautiful. This is a really beautiful lyrical piece of work.
1: Oh, thank you so much. That's all I want people to say about the book is that it's beautiful. <laughs>
2: So we're done. <laughs> <It's> perfect. <laughs> Podcast over. It also, uh, being about fatherhood, identity,
1: and the problem with wonks, it's very much in the center <laughs> of my current interests. <laughs> I didn't let the anti-wonk stuff dominate the book, but uh, I can see it would stand out. Um, no, but, it, but it's an interesting fit. We'll get to
2: it. Um, so, so let me begin here. The book, it takes place while you're becoming a father, and I just became a father, um, which I think is part of why I found it so moving. So. What is the absence of a father in your life growing up taught you about what it means to be a father in
1: someone else's life? Well, yeah, that's exactly what I was exploring. So basically, the book begins with, uh, I'm writing letters to my father, uh, who wasn't present in my own childhood. And I'm writing to him at a time I'm becoming a father. And really, you know, I'm kind of struggling In, in the introduction I mentioned, you know, throughout my childhood, I was told that I didn't need my father, right? He wasn't around and I was just told, you don't need him, you can get on without him. And that's kind of an interesting place to be put when you become a father yourself. Uh, It's very hard to think of this job or this role in life as superfluous to your children. So I was writing to him about this sudden passion that was awakened in me to reconnect with my roots really. Uh, And really a time in my life when uh, in my early childhood, when my mother was kind of pushing this Irish identity on us, it was something she had embraced because my father himself is Irish. And it was just part of her world in the 80s of supporting the Irish nationalist world that existed in New York at the time, which was very conscious politically about what was happening in Northern Ireland Today we think about nationalism as like a right wing phenomenon, but it was definitely more left wing uh, in my childhood, or at least it was anti Maggie Thatcher and anti Reagan. So I just had this kind of desire to connect with the Irish language that my mother had kind of used ornamentally in our home and Irish history, which had informed kind of the songs and stories of my youth. Um, and through that, I was kind of connecting back to my father himself, the man.
2: There's something interesting about the word need there. And this is something that, that you touch on in the book, but that by every external metric, good grades, good jobs, girlfriends, friends, you're doing fine. I mean, if, if a social scientist had looked at you and had been trying to run a study on do you need your father, the answer would have probably been no.
1: Exactly, And and that's the thing is, um, you know, this book isn't like weepy in, in the normal way. It's not saying... I'll try oh. reading it just after you had a kid. <laughs> well, I wasn't I I wasn't um trying to say I I was a victim of fatherlessness in some way. Um but what I wanted to describe accurately was that I still was missing something in my life. Either, you know, that there were times even when I'm doing well, where I felt like the presence of my father in my life would have, you know, warded off bullying or Given me some other source of strength in life, you know. I was trying to struggle to understand what what it is my father provided, and at times in my life, I kind of accepted this idea that all the measurements would be something that a social scientist could measure. You know, my grades, my uh, my health, my um, my sociability, um, what college I got into, what kind of job I achieved, that I married uh, and had children myself. By all those scores, yeah, I was doing great, and yet um, I still felt this lack in life, uh, or at least this desire to reconnect with a man who wasn't present for for all but a few days of my childhood. Why do you think you had such a,
2: a strong Irish identity? You grew up in New Jersey, was it?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, I was born and raised in Bloomfield, New Jersey, and then halfway through my childhood, we moved to Putnam County, New York. And, you know, it seemed like everyone in my town was either Irish or Italian, or at least in our neighborhood. And when I was a kid, I kind of thought of America as like, there are Irish people, Italian people and Jewish people. And somewhere down south, there are Baptists. And I was Irish. I had the Irish name. And my mother would take me to Irish cultural events throughout New Jersey, where there would be traditional Irish music, dancing language activism, right? So there's a, uh, maybe listeners don't know, there's such a thing as an Irish language that's kind of been dying for a few centuries. And there have been these periodic attempts at revival. And my mother was a part of that here in America. She would she would take me to these festivals and she would speak or sing in Irish or we would go to retreats in rural New York, rural New York where um, you were supposed to try to speak Irish only with other Irish people, Irish immigrants that were living in New York. Um, in a lot of ways, a lot of Jewish readers are connecting with this book strongly because of the idea of like going to someplace in rural New York and spending time with people based on your nationality uh, is a com- kind of a common experience for many Jews too, or at least older ones. Yeah,
2: the East Coast Jewish summer camp phenomenon.
1: Yeah. So I've gotten a good, good response from American Jews on this book. And then my home kind of filled up with Irish cultural stuff, you know, the music, you know, early in my childhood, it would have been folk music, but then gradually in the nineties, it was pop music from Ireland. We would travel there occasionally. And I also just had this imaginative longing for it because that's where my father was, right? I knew that my mother's side had emigrated just after the American civil war. And I knew my father was still over there. So it always kind of felt like, um, just over the horizon let me try to
2: push you a little bit off of the kind what is the right word for this like the concreteness of it i'm something i'm interested in and, and, and trying to think about a lot lately is what does it mean when we have identities and then what does it mean when we identify right because you know i'm brazilian um or my i'm sorry i shouldn't say it like that my father is brazilian and i have a connection to brazil that i don't have to other places but it isn't a deep identity not in the way that say your irishness is And, you know, we can look at those questions of identity through the things that surrounded us as a child. Like, you know, I watched the World Cup with my dad, that kind of thing. But I'm also interested in what in us makes us choose to have these identities, makes us decide to spend the precious time we have on Earth um, trying to unearth this place and this thing. So when I ask why is your Irish identity important to you, I hear the way in which people try to make it important to you. But mm-hmm. but why is it important to you, right? Why not spend that time on things that are more present focused? Why not learn to play the guitar, right? What is it this thing that you know? Again, to go back to the social scientist, if a social scientist tried to explain like why you were doing what you were doing, it wouldn't it wouldn't come out on the chart really. Obviously, what do you think it is in you that pulls you back?
1: I don't know. I think um, for me, most Irish people would look at me and say you're you're a Yank or you're even something even worse. You're a plastic patty right? That I don't have that experience. And I try to wrestle with that question in the book that in a sense, I'm I'm by embracing kind of Irish nationalism from a hundred years ago and these songs and these other things, I'm actually embracing something that is in many ways defunct in Ireland uh, in 2019. And I think there are a couple of reasons for it. I think people who feel that their identity is challenged in some way, which I would feel as someone who's father is over there and not nearby uh, you know i'd feel some way like i'm not entirely irish or i'm not just a normal american whose parents have been here for you know many generations at least that was my view of what a normal american was and so yeah that that sense of being challenged i think for me also there's this uh there's a sense i try to communicate through the book of my own cultural formation growing up in the 80s and 90s Uh, was entirely this idea of hey you're free to do whatever you want that you can do you can do and be anything and there's nothing we're really going to push on you you know the the kind of irish nationalism that was given to me in my childhood was sort of lifted away it was kind of transformed into just the vhs of river dance that was on our television all the time or or music my mother would play but i was kind of free to decide who or what i wanted to be and in a way that um, it's hard to describe, I tried to describe it in the book, but this sense that nationality as an inheritance or an obligation, that, that idea of obligation kind of felt dangerous and forbidden in some ways, too. You know, this, this idea that there's an identity that I could have sort, sort of an obligation to that preexisted all my notions about it. That felt dangerous and in some ways exciting because the world I was raised in was entirely about, you know, there's nothing you have to do that you didn't choose to do. So I don't know, that kind of had a romantic pull, like there's something outside of myself I can can rely on and that I can take comfort in. And uh, as I try to communicate too, there's also just the Irish story as I was told it to me was inspiring and heroic and romantic. In a way that I felt like growing up at the end of history wasn't.
2: I'm so glad you use the end of history right there. I'm so, I was so about to go into that, and I'm so glad you you brought yeah. it in here.
1: I mean, I, I did. I, I don't want the book to sound so heavy as far as like it's uh, like it's so academic. But yeah, I refer to. I don't even name him, but I refer a little bit to Francis Fukuyama's book, The End of History and the Last Man.
2: Yeah, it, it is not. I will say for for readers, it is a, a, a lyrical memoir, not an, an academic book. But unfortunately, you've ended up on my podcast, and so we are where we are. <laughs> it's fine. No, it's just all good. <laughs> but but, but th- this is what I want to go into, and and I want to say for folks who are following along here. We're sort of table setting here because I think the the themes you bring up are really, really important to how we live now and our politics and some of the, the the deeper conflicts we're having with each other and ourselves. So we sort of have to build the particular to build to the general. Yeah. But I think for a lot of people who grew up in the age we did, if you did not have the, the upbringing you did, um, Ireland is an end of history country. Yeah. Right. Ireland is one of those countries where, since I've been an adult, mostly it's fine. You hear it is primarily in the news for reasons of taxes. It's primarily in the news as a place that, like Apple, puts offshore income. Yeah. Um. You know, it's a Celtic tiger. It had a great growth story, and you are hearkening back to an Ireland that is not end of history. That is, yeah. a place of revolutionary struggle. Not a hundred years ago. Not even. Seventy-five years ago, but but in our lifetimes, right? And so I know that asking somebody on a podcast to do a like a like a quick history of the troubles is <laughs> is a, a little bit of a big ask. But but can you just paint a picture a bit of the context of Ireland? You know, I think sort of for the generation right before us. Yeah, for people who don't
1: really know it, I'll go back a little bit further and do one of these super quick explainers you know ireland has always been uh, you know for the last millennium has been a a security concern for england right england doesn't want foreign armies landing in ireland and being able to stage an invasion and so england had always had this uh relationship with ireland which has been alternated between colonialism and trying to absorb ireland and what happened is after um you know there were Anglo Normans who kind of came into Ireland, became a, an elite there, and then gradually kind of assimilated. They started speaking Irish, etc. In the Tudor era, right, King Henry VIII and onward, one plan for English uh, domination of Ireland was to bring colonists and settlers from Scotland into Ireland. And with them came the Protestant religion and so on. And they primarily settled in the northern part of Ireland. Fast forward to the 20th century, Irish nationalists, most of them Catholics, although not all, want to bring about this separation between Ireland and the United Kingdom, their own form of Brexit oh, uh, just over 100 years ago. They fight, and eventually, over a kind of period of a few decades, they achieve full separation for 26 counties. And then there's this six-county exclave in the north, which we call Northern Ireland today, that had Protestant majorities who preferred to stay in the union. And that border's become very notable in the news recently because there's a lot of trade over it, which is potentially threatened by Brexit. Now, that six-county statelet of Northern Ireland had a a Protestant majority and a a significant Catholic minority, and uh, that Catholic minority had... Basically, lived with legal disability, legal and political disabilities, and gradually, as they they challenged it, the uh, sectarian conflict became very intensified in the 60s and in the 70s. And on you know, Protestant side, you had paramilitaries like the Ulster Volunteer Force or Ulster Defence Association. You had on the Irish side the Provisional IRA. It was called the Troubles, and it was literally like a a. A street war with lots of terrorism, lots of connivance of authorities in Dublin intervening occasionally on the side of the IRA of uh, authorities, the police or the military intervening on the side of Protestant majorities in Northern Ireland, and it was a bloody, awful campaign, the ceasefire of which came in 1994 when we were pretty young. Uh, leading eventually to the Good Friday Agreement and the current kind of political settlement in Northern Ireland in 1998. And when I was a very young kid in the 1980s, I mean, we would have been in bars in Boston or in Queens with Irish immigrants and Americans would be very nationalistic. You know, uh, George Orwell has this line about how it's very easy to be nationalistic about a country other than your own. So my mother was very tuned in to the political developments there, um, you know, Irish political prisoners, hunger strikers, etc. Um, and those concerns filled her letters uh, back to my father uh, as well. Um, my father would have been a little bit cooler in Ireland to the provisional IRA. Lots of Irish people thought that these were maniacal terrorists who were causing trouble and uh, bringing trouble on Ireland. Keeping it an economic backwater in some ways because of the violence, which prevents investment, or inspiring retributive attacks from Protestant paramilitaries in Dublin or in other parts of Ireland. You know, it was a bloody screaming mess. And, and actually, when you go to Northern Ireland today, I think people know it's that there's peace in Northern Ireland, but I don't think most Americans. Who might have been tuned into this conflict 30 years ago still understand the, the level of segregation by religion um, in Northern Ireland and the kind of the low level amount of sectarian hostility uh, that exists up there, right? All the political parties in Northern Ireland are, are basically sectarian forces and the, the settlement up there is about balancing their interests.
2: There's a an anecdote from a book. Um, I want to say this is from Democracy for Realists, but uh, I, I don't 100% remember so I have it wrong, please forgive me. But um someone is in Ireland and is traveling around this area and is asked um, are, are you a Protestant or Catholic? And he says, "Oh, no, I'm I am do don't, don't worry about me, I'm an atheist." And the guy says, "Yeah, yeah, but are you are you a Protestant atheist or a Catholic a- atheist?" And to me it's like it was such a perfect encapsulation of how identity really works. Um, and, and and how much deeper it often is than the things we are are saying that it's about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is... Um, there are lots of things you can't say in Northern Ireland in the wrong company or shouldn't say, colors you shouldn't wear. And people draw a lot of humor about this. You know, there's a, a series, I think, on Netflix now, Dairy Girls, that kind of looks at the, the tail end years of this conflict through the eyes of middle school girls. And um, it can be hilarious comedy in a way. But, I mean, this was... This is deadly serious stuff where you have two communities that have dueling national loyalties living cheek by jowl. and it could lead to explosive violence and and in that violence also corruption and abuse. I mean, uh, you know in many ways, you know, you can talk to people who live in the United States who used to live in Northern Ireland, Catholics who felt they were abused by the IRA because the IRA would would try to control, catholic territory and control crime in catholic territory for its own purposes so it's a very complex and difficult uh situation that's still unresolved and and it's actually why so many people are, are fearful of any changes to the constitutional order of northern ireland because of brexit either the erection of a border with ireland or or even a
3: sea border between northern ireland and the rest of the uk support for the gray area comes from shopify Shopify.com slash Fox
0: support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data and information in one AI powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. One
2: of the things that's really interesting to me to be meta about this for a minute talking to you here is that there's this emotionality to this in the book. And, and, And the way it comes out in the book is... That modernity's verdict on this period, on these on on the troubles, on this kind of violence, the terrorism that that attended all this, modernity's verdict is sort of your father's verdict that it was holding back investment in Ireland, yeah, that it was creating division that didn't need to be there, that there's no reason Ireland and the UK couldn't live side by side in peace. I mean, much more united than divided, and that since the settlements, that's been true and and in the book, there's um, it seems to me that the role this is playing for you, uh, as you think about it, is that there is a nobility in struggle, a war is a force that gives us meaning, and nationalism is a force that gives our lives meaning, that you think in a toxic way is leached out of modern society. And it's funny, because when I hear you talk about this, I feel like you talk about it a little bit in the, the high-minded way of, of modernity, but in the book, I would say you have a sort of contempt for that view.
1: Uh, yeah, listen, it's, a, it's a mix. I do not want to return to the troubles at all. I don't try to take a big verdict on, on the troubles. And in, in some ways in the, in the book, I kind of talk about how in some ways, uh, the Irish American, uh, support for the provisional IRA was kind of stupid and ill-informed in many sense. And and I try to make a distinguish- to, to distinguish between that cause and kind of the earlier period uh, during the Easter Rising in 1916, which I find much more heroic and inspiring. But yeah, in in the book, I do think that the, you know, in a sense, the book is me struggling with the world my parents gave me. And it's a world uh, that they were very satisfied in building, right? It was a world where they, my father's generation in Ireland uh, and my mother's generation in America you know, kind of tore down the authority of the church over our lives, uh, tore down the authority of a national story or mythology to order our lives. And in some ways, though, I, I, I want to say that there were parts of romantic Ireland that mean something to me and that, in fact, I don't think nations can live merely as tax rates and shopping malls, that they, they have to provide a sense of home I mean, ultimately, the, the, the book comes around to say that, you know, home is made by sacrifice. Um, and that, that was something that I was learning through my own fatherhood and and this examination of Irish history, that the liberation of Ireland was accomplished in sacrifice. And that in some ways, this, this modern Ireland, which many people love and, and which is in many ways so improved, even from my own childhood, is... Uh, is free in one sense, but it, it is in some ways, I I worry, enslaved in another where Ireland won't feel this now because the economy is very good in Europe and America, but they are tremendously exposed to the next downturn and they have to figure out how to live together. Um, there are problems, uh, I think, in Ireland that are, are politically impossible to address unless you have an ethic that demands self-sacrifice by elites and a corresponding duty to all the citizens and members of a society right like Ireland has the same problems that we see in American cities and in British cities of cost of living is totally unaffordable in the major cities where there's opportunity you have cost disease and healthcare and all, and all these other places and the the kind of suggestion i'm making in the book is be, this is true because We've lost this this ethic of fellow feeling and of of membership in a common home.
2: So w- one of the reasons I've been excited to talk to you about this book is that I think in some ways it's a pretty deep critique of people like me, and <laughs> and and I want to pull that out. I, I want I want to like sort of give you license to really make that here because I think it's a it's a good conversation to have. So I want to read a quote from the book that's about nationalism. Sure. Um, and about a kind of nationalism that I don't want to say has gone out of fashion because I do think it is represented. I think in some ways Donald Trump represents it, though I know that, that you have many problems with him and, and, and his behavior. I do think it is a nationalism that in many quarters of elite opinion is considered disreputable. Yeah. And, and so you sort of say, as a rejoinder to this, what is a nation? In this way of thinking, a nation is at best a problematic, if still useful, administrative unit. That is, it's merely the arena in which technocrats and wonks do their work of making improvements on society. And now our men of letters cannot develop a political or moral thought without searching out a social science abstract from which to loot it. And then you say a little bit later. Nationalism usually does not spring from the meat-headed conviction that one's nation is best in every way, but from something like a panicked realization that nobody in authority or around you is taking the nation seriously. So I'd like you to expand a bit on this mm-hmm. idea of nationalism and, and what you think the people you're arguing with, whether it's people like me or, or I'm, I'm getting that wrong, are 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 missing or or erasing from it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm also try- in some ways trying to, to show that Something of the Irish nationalism of a century ago uh, of men like Patrick Pierce or Owen McNeil or Sir Roger Casement uh, had something to offer not just as a rebuke to wonks like you but also to to some of the modern nationalists. you know Ireland's nationalist movement of over a century ago was a cultural movement first it was a movement of writing balladry and songs it was a movement of promoting art, you know, the stage plays at the Abbey Theater, W.B. Yeats's poetry, uh, Lady Gregory's poetry and, and kind of uh, recovery of Irish mythology, the recovery of the Irish language itself uh, as a, a kind of badge of pride and resistance when it had been the badge of a beaten race. So it, at first, it was an attempt to kind of do this cultural revival before it it spilled out into military rebellion and um, the cause of political separation and the, the founding of a nation state. And what I wanted to, to put across is that there's some way in which we talk about, I think in the, in the modern world, we, we lack confidence in our ability to say what we want in society, what we desire. And one of the reasons I chose to write this book as a book of letters is because I found that private conversation in Ireland is is freer than anywhere else I've known on earth. It's freer than it is in America, even if they're, they're kind of public conversation I find pretty straightjacketed. And in that free conversation, I, I wanted to say that these ideas and ideals, this history is important to me. And, and I was and I wanted to resist the kind of waves of of deconstruction and demythologizing that have happened to this. National story, because if our conversation is just reduced to social science, one, I think it's forbidding in a democracy. Uh, the idea that you you kind of have to become an expert to even begin to opine politically and say what you want uh, with any authority. I think, in some ways, I'm a I I have a little bit of a small D Democrat in me that says that the citizen. Can just say what is in his heart, and uh that itself should command some respect in a democracy. And I think the kind of technocratic wonk age, it has difficulty describing the societies it really is because it's so dependent on studies and and measurements, and I often think the quality of measurement is is low. I mean, and, th- and that's exactly why I kind of wrote the book with this this mystery at the heart of it, which is I am a fatherless child. You can look at all the social science extracts uh, about what happens to fatherless children, that they're more likely to be obese, that they're more likely to um, you know, not go to college, that their marriages are more likely to fail. They're more likely to be abused as children. Um, they're more likely to be abused by authority figures in schools or at church. Uh, none of those things happened to me. And yet uh, I still wanted to be able to say from my heart that I missed my father and that I I wanted to be with him. And I wanted that, that personal desire and that personal expression of in the home run parallel to and connect with this idea of um, – a homeland and and I, I let the comparison work the other way as well and say that in some ways because we're filled with this idea of technocracy and working on the world as wonks that way of thinking even invades the home in some way where you know I talk about kind of the the idiotic advice that we give to parents of like well you should do this for your child you should read to your child because you know children who are read to perform at this metric higher. On their academic challenges in life and it's like okay but when i look into my own child's eyes i i want to read to her because i want to spend time with her because i love her uh that's i'm i'm not doing this just for her to pass on advantage and success that's looking at it through one relatively small lens so yeah in in that sense the book is kind of a a revolt against the modern world (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so let, let me, let, so this I think is what's so, so interesting about it
2: and because and, I want to hold here for a minute. Sure. One, one thing, one thing I really want to say I agree with you is that the quality of measurement is bad and you get into a, like a seeing like a state problem where you end up discussing what you can measure. And because what you can measure is something like academic performance much better than I, I think a lot because I've been reading a lot of parenting books, how much more discussion there is in parenting books about how to make your child smart or rich than how to make them good right yeah um there's so much more discussion than that and i'm so much more worried about how to make them good um but <laughs> yeah. that said and i think this kind of unites the conversations about about nationalism and wonkishness and, and 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 the rest of it i'm somebody who i think uh like in in these conversations uh, and i often see myself represented this way uh like I like stand in for the wonk, right? I ran I ran yeah. a site called Wonk Blog. Like I've done, I think probably more than anyone else in the culture right now to try to reclaim the word wonk from like somebody who is boring um, to somebody who is trying to take an approach to solving problems. And I often see, I often see that approach derided or dismissed as an approach that lacks a, an emotional or soulful core, and. I don't think of it that way, but but I do think of it in a way that I think offers a, a challenge to some of what you're saying here, which is in some ways, and I'll speak for myself here, I feel enough. I feel so much and I feel so pulled by what I feel that I don't trust it. Mm-hmm. That I think a tremendous amount of being an adult and being in modernity is disciplining some of what our intentions are as humans. And, and, and the good thing that social science cannot do hundred percent, but it can help us do. Is discipline some of our intuitions? Oh, those people are bad. No, well, actually, like when you look at it, <laughs> um, having these things that in society uh, look away you don't like, maybe it's good for people, or maybe you have to maybe you have to take a different way. Um, and, and I could come up with examples on this, of course. Um, but like, for instance, actually one that is really hard for me to deal with is that, oh, you think that everything's just an argument? Nope, actually, all the social science says that argument basically doesn't work. Persuasion right. doesn't work the way you think it does. Sorry, um, this is not just a debating club. And even if it were debating clubs, don't convince anybody of anything anyway. And, and I feel this way about nationalism. I am somebody who I feel very deeply connected to my Americanness. It's very important to me. Yeah. And I also believe on some level that the beauty of nations one of the things that has made them important is that part of the great project of the human race is to expand our circle of empathy, expand the circle of people and even beings who we care enough about their lives to bring them into moral consideration. Right, And the nation was a story we told in order to expand beyond the units we were able to do before. And I am really, really, really grateful to that, to the extent that it helps us do that. And then when I see nationalism do the opposite, when I see it become a way for us to contract our circle of empathy beyond what it could be or what it should be, to dehumanize other people, to say that the people coming here as refugees, whether or not we are able to take them, that we don't need to morally be concerned with them, Mm. that's where nationalism becomes concerning to me. And that's not because the nation is just an administrative unit it's because the nation is a moral unit, but it's not the final moral unit. It's a a moral unit helping us rather than hurting us. And I think a lot of this discussion about nationalism, it kind of elides that. And and what I like about your book is, is there's an argument that nationalism gives us a purpose. And I think the question for people like me is whether or not that purpose can actually be expand it out, whether or not that is possible, or somehow we've hit like the final, the final building block unit of of purpose. I, I hope we haven't, but but that to me is a place where a place where these things come into tension. I think that there's a there's an easy critique of things like social science technocracy or nationalism, as if like everybody's just making the decisions based on that for for no reason. But to some degree, I think that the a lot of the people doing it, and I, and I, I do think this for myself, are doing it because it's so hard to force yourself to go beyond your feelings and your intuitions and try to think what might i be wrong about what what kind of external right. things can i grab onto that can discipline me when i am angry or when i have something where this is how society looks fair but maybe how society looks fair is not going to be good for even the people i'm trying to help
1: well you know it's interesting too you know we're both we're, we're both of us expressing the same moral direction right we're both we're both of us trying to defend this idea of not just empathy, but right action, right? And so I think you noticed in, my, in the book, you know, the way I talk about nationalism and, and the way I talk about my own life and, and things I saw, you know, for instance, my mother suffer in the world as we've made it in the 80s and 90s. What I saw was, uh, you know, and in the quote you read, this idea that people were so wrapped up in their own individual aims and prizes and that the the common inheritance that belongs to a nation that binds it, that helps us bind our moral imagination to each other, that literally it helps me to become the type of person who would, in the a moment of stress or in um, a moment of peril, throw my life away to save you, right? That common bond inheritance I've often think is threatened by not just kind of capitalism but th- this attitude around modern capitalism and modernity that in fact all our duties to each other are kind of illusory or they're they're only useful i th- i think people maybe aren't as good-hearted as you <laughs> some some technocrats aren't as good-hearted as you and 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 really, this is kind of a mechanism for attaining power and control and prestige and status only, that at bottom, that that's what people really believe. And in fact, that's sometimes what lurks a little bit beneath uh, writers like Jordan Peterson, who I made a, a brief and disparaging allusion to in the book, uh, this idea that, well, at bottom, biologically, it's all about struggle and status and hierarchy. And our high ideals really aren't connected to reality. They're just sort of how we cope with it. And I wanted to argue against that and say, no, actually, your family is real, a a person's fatherhood is real, a person's nation is real, and there are real debts and obligations that come with that. And I agree, you know, nationalism obviously is associated with some of the worst crimes in human history. And, um, you know, I tend to think of nationalist politics as a kind of phenomenon where the loyalties and the bonds we have as a nation come into an irritated state. Because that's a lot of what nationalist politics is, right? Everyone notices its so character is very irritated. And so where you find uh, that sense of national loyalty or bond threatened by a large irritant, say like you're in Kiev in Ukraine, you have this large irritant in Moscow. And so you find a lot of nationalism in Ukraine. You find a lot of nationalism in Northern Ireland, uh, both unionist and Irish nationalist because there's this irritant of uh, people sharing six counties, but having divided national loyalties. But I think in most times, I see the role of someone like me, who's kind of a national conservative, is to kind of foster those almost pre-political bonds of national unity and protect them from what would disassemble them or or derationalize them. My critique of kind of anti-nationalist wonks is often that, well, you say you want to be liberated from these kind of meat-headed prejudices of nationalism, but the level of sacrifice required for establishing brotherhood of man on a universal scale doesn't actually seem to interest many of these people. And in fact... Many times it just seems like a cover story for ditching their obligations to their fellow citizens, right? Like, I'm too busy, you know, tending to uh, common humanity to worry about my neighbor. And so I think we're both working on the same moral impulse, but we might have a different diagnosis of of where the danger of going wrong is in this Right in this and,
2: and, to, and to back up your point there, there are plenty of cosmopolitan internationalists who spend their day doing high-frequency trading. Right. Um, not to solely pick on the high frequency traders. Um, right. And it's an easy thing to believe and and, and not an easy thing to, to try to work towards. But I guess I, I just don't know how much force I think that critique has, because, you know, run through the things that can give you a moral purpose or a a, a unit of brotherhood. Right. Just the ones even we're talking about nationalism, religion. And I think I'm sort of arguing for like an almost like philosophic morality. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we look inside those groups, every one of them is going to have plenty of people who talk the talk right? and uh, seem to be arrogating power to themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly, the history of nationalism is full of people who talk very sweetly about the importance of the community and are unbelievably corrupt and bloodthirsty right. and seem to be only out for their own power. I mean, I will say that our current president is somebody who I think is able to strike a very powerful national chord. and is out more for himself as a personality type than just about anyone I've ever seen on the public scene. Oh yeah. He's not a self-sacrificing nationalist. And and so we just end up in a place where the human pull towards status and power and selfishness one and and I don't want to I appreciate you saying maybe I'm more good hearted but I have plenty of that in myself too and I don't want to exempt myself from it. Um it is there and you know we we end up in these questions about how to try to discipline it and you know i've always said on this podcast that i think the i think the most profound critique of current liberal politics particularly current liberal technocratic politics is the religious critique because i think that um the society built so much around individualism and sort of individual human flourishing lacks restraints in a way that that, that ultimately can be poisonous to to us all um but on the other side you know i think the religious critique often does not actually give people restraint. It's just something that ends up used as a cudgel. And so, I don't know, I don't want to end up in a nihilistic space here of, of 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 no kind of philosophy matters, but but it's hard to sometimes draw the distinctions people want to draw.
1: I agree, you know, and it's it you know, on a fundamental level, I also happen to believe that every kind of political paradigm that you or I invent if it achieves and becomes a vehicle for exercising power, it will naturally attract opportunists and self-seekers who will, over time, discredit it. Fundamentally, that is kind of what happened in Ireland, right? They have this revolution in 1916, then the Anglo-Irish War, which is 100 years ago now. They established an Irish Free State, and that state becomes the site of a lot of corruption and failure. And that corruption and failure, whether it's the you know stuff we hear about in America, like the Magdalene Laundries, or um, the industrial schools in Ireland, which were rife with abuse, those failures and moral enormities then discredit the whole paradigm. And similarly, I think we saw, you know, in some ways, the moment we're living in now politically is trying to assign blame for things like the Iraq War or the financial crisis over a decade ago, and say, okay, was it internationalists? Was it a kind of a silly moral cosmopolitanism that informed um, kind of the, the failures that are, have been associated with this political order? So so I do think that that will happen Uh, and that's why I kind of took this book to focus on this very kind of – to explore some of these questions on on the microscopic level at the level of one family and then one kind of small nation which has been a symbol both of nationalist fury and resistance and then is now also now turned itself into and constantly protests that it is – the, you know, one of the most liberal, most cosmopolitan, most modern countries on earth. Um, Ireland is funny in that it's the only country on earth, en- English-speaking country on earth, that feels the need to tell everyone, we're modern.
2: <laughs> it's it's funny that you say your your book has had a warm reception among Jews because some of what you say about Ireland is very applicable to Israel.
1: Yeah, I mean, and it's it's part of the American experience for myself— Most Irish Americans don't have as strong a tie to Ireland as I do where I have this direct biological link to someone living there, to many people living there. But many Jews do have a biological link to family members who live in Israel or who are thinking of living in Israel or have the right to go live live in Israel. And so, yeah, there is definitely that idea of a split identity. And yeah, there, there are parallels too. 100 years ago between the Irish nationalists and uh, Zionists, right? This idea of recovering a language, trying to recover the manhood of a nation and establish a nation state uh, that's independent and that looks after the interests of the nation. So yeah, there are, there are a ton of parallels there.
2: I want to talk about another tension the book brought up for me. Something that uh, connected to to things I've been struggling with myself. So, w- one of the things about this book is it's very much about the pull our traditions, our families, our, our our national past holds on us. I think I think at the book at the end of the book you talk about how much the present is the work of redeeming a series of obligations put on us by the past on behalf of the future. Right. Yeah. And and, and it's. A a a beautiful line. And I think in general, conservatives are more attuned and attentive to the obligations our past puts on our present, Um, certainly emotionally and philosophically and conceptually. There's a discussion about what we owe the founding fathers or the degree to which we we should respect their judgment that is deeper in conservatism, say, than liberalism. And yet a place where that breaks down is that conservatism by the same token is very Skeptical of the way our material past shapes our present. Um, the way in which the wealth of the father ends up being the opportunities of the son. Right. The way in which our racial past, oppression and redlining and slavery and, and all the rest of it makes equality today so difficult and makes so many of the outcomes we see today preordained in a way that potentially requires redress. And there seems to me to be a, a problem here that there's a, a, a movement that is that sees our past and the way it shapes our present so clearly when it is abstract, and then is so willing to deny that when the way it shapes our present is more tangible and requires more from us than to, to fix it than than a kind of, uh, of a- admiration and, and respect.
1: Well, you, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because. Um... So you felt reading the book that in some ways I was speaking to you through this, and and I I'll go on record as not denying that. But there, you know there are other peers I felt I was speaking to as well, particularly Tanahisi Coates. Um, I think that comes through in in the second chapter where I, I kind of deliberately use language from his book and, and redeploy it in the in the history of Ireland. And you're right. I mean, in some ways. You know, my book does try to, in some ways, echoes the the criticism you just made um, of conservatism. That you know, in some ways, what I I loved about Tanahisi Coates's book, and and almost what I was drawing out in an impish way, was that you know he would made this beautiful, plangent, fragrant case for what I took to be plangent. Yeah. Well, it just it just.
2: No, I think I just don't know the word. What does it mean? <laughs> oh my it's god! A beautiful word.
1: Um, plangent is like loud, reverberating, and often melancholy, right? Like this mournful, plaintive cry, like a like the like the toll of a church bell. Yeah, and you know, in a way, he'd made this it's case. A beautiful term. He'd made this plangent case. I thought for for black nationalism, but he didn't quite embrace the conclusion. You know, he sort of fell short of it. In the end, he kind of retreats backward into a kind of historical pessimism. And what I look at is I look at the Irish struggle and I I looked at a figure like Owen McNeill who tried to excavate the actual material harms that were done to Ireland by the colonial project of England in Ireland or by its union within the United Kingdom of Ireland and Great Britain. And what he does is he just... Works tirelessly. He works. He works to the point of a nervous breakdown in his midlife, trying to teach true history, trying to support uh, efforts at language revival, cultural revival, and then in the end, embraces this potentiality for something unusual for a scholar. I mean, one of the interesting things about the the Irish revolutionaries, I kind of look at in the book, is that they were a generation formed by a liberal world defined by its trading arrangements, its commercialism, its freedom. They were the men of letters of their time, schoolteachers, poets, language activists, and yet in this moment, they put on green uniforms and started shooting, occupying buildings, and trying to drive out the English who had been, in a sense, a fact of life in Ireland for centuries so yeah i wanted I wanted people to look at that I wanted conservatives too to look at this book and see the the material inheritance of our world as something that we have to to grope with just as much as the um as as that more abstract idea of of the past weighing on the present on behalf of the future, which I talk about at the end but at the same time i I don't want to make it sound like it's all about this duty it's also this inheritance of history is also, I believe, and I try to make a case for it in my own life and, and nationally. It's also a gift in some ways, and there's some there's a treasure about it, a, a, something to take comfort in, um, as well. Uh, something that you know, we're not just deluding ourselves with these ideals. They actually weigh on us, and and if we let them, they'll re, reshape us and reform us. So yeah, I, I did. It's definitely not of. A, a, a full apology for conservatism. Um, you know, I think I peppered the book with a lot of stray remarks about what um, an untrammeled free market, divorced from morality, can do to people. Oh yeah, and
2: you're very much, a, I think, a thoughtful critic of these. So, but let, let me push the same question, um, but off of the book, right? I'm I'm curious if you think if you think that is a is a real critique because I, I agree that's not it, your your book is in some ways an, an antidote to that, but conservatism itself. I mean, you work for the National Review, which is an an arbiter of conservatism. and, And I would make this critique of someone like Charlie Cook, who I think is very thoughtful about the past in a philosophical way and the way it shapes our present and the way it deserves admiration. And then if you get onto something like economics, it's like, well, do your best, you know, like we've started equality now. And I guess to me, there's something there's something interesting in the ways in which liberals and conservatives seem to Honor different ways the past shapes our present. Mm. Whereas I think conservatives sort of honor it as a moral tradition Mm -hmm. um, that shapes us profoundly and in sort of the Burkean way. If you were, you know, to, to, to go against it is to do something very dangerous. Right. And liberals honor it as a material circumstance, wherein to go against it is to often attempt something that for many is nearly impossible. And there seems to be something interesting in the way then the two sides flip when you change the topic.
1: Right. You no, know, it's very true. Um, I don't want to speak for Charlie's. that's A great good friend, but I will say, I mean, he's an inheritor of a more lib, you know, small l liberal tradition of conservatism that in in some ways is is orthogonal to what I, what I've written here. But I I do think just to inform listeners, I think there's um you know a massive skepticism on the part of many conservatives about how you would redress these things you know one thing i didn't get into into the book but would be relevant here and in this time is that probably one of the reasons i'm a, i'm a little bit more sympathetic to the idea of race based reparations in the united states is looking at the history of reparations in europe or or other Programs in Ireland, particularly in its history, there was a movement toward land reform. In the past, English authorities like Cromwell kind of drove the Irish off their land. I mean, in 1603, during one historic defeat of Irish rebellion, almost all the land in Ireland was owned by Irish people. Um, within 40 years, that was not the case at all. And further, after the Great Famine in the 19th century, Lots of English landlords came over and basically bought Irish estates speculatively uh, when they were at this entirely low ebb. And so in the late 19th century, you had a program of land reform that was meant to you know, essentially trans, help transfer wealth out of the hands of English landlords and back into the hands of the Irish in the form of their land. And it was good for Irish society on the whole. and although from an english perspective it may have helped fuel further demands of of political sovereignty later so that matters to me and um you know i i probably would identify more as a a national conservative or a one nation conservative that's more of an english term so it's a little ironical for me to use it here but i i personally think that a modern democratic america has an expectation of equal citizenship that has to be embodied in more than just the barest formal mechanism of the law, right? The idea that, okay, one we sentence murderers from each social class, according to the same laws. And in fact, in practice, that actually isn't true. <laughs> um, so I do think an American conservative should attend to this Innate uh, and inherited American desire for fairness um, and equality—that's probably a little bit broader in scope than what you would find just in in the founders' notes. Um,
2: You're somebody who I think is a very good perspective on currents and conservatism, and, yeah. and I think in some ways Donald Trump represents a lot, but he's such a sui generis figure, right? That you can't you can't extrapolate too much from him. So so let me ask the question this way. Do you think in 15 years, the American right, probably the Republican Party, looks more like Paul Ryan, Tucker Carlson, or for lack of a better term, the the sort of emergent ideas around the
1: intellectual dark web? You know, um, it's a good question, because on some level, I think liberals look at the passions Donald Trump has excited, some of them obviously uh, rooted in racism and think, okay, this is the real motor here. And obviously, if Donald Trump put out a book tomorrow, it's going to outsell my book. Oh, don't sell yourself short. Well, we'll see. I mean, this, this <laughs> podcast does have reach. My view currently, uh, and this is subject to change, I mean, the nomination of Bernie Sanders or his election as president, I think, would change it. But my view is right now that passions around culture war issues are continuing to drive a resorting in American politics that's been going on for a long time. Uh, You can express it a lot of ways, but basically upwardly mobile educated voters are going more and more into the Democratic Party. We've seen some movement of downwardly mobile whites into the Republican Party. Maybe there's a tiniest trickle of people who identify as Hispanic or Latino coming into the Republican Party. Although the questions of who identifies as Hispanic and Latino are fraught, right? There's, you know, the thesis that many of them maybe identify that way on a form, but maybe not socially as much as they're, they're not connected to immigrant uh, sentiment or community. So I think the culture war is driving this, this trend and conservatism clearly has this like moral and traditional conservatism has this subaltern quality that drives elites away from it. I mean you could express this in another way too, I mean you could say that I, I was noting somewhere else today that we used to say that the Episcopalian church was the Republican party at prayer, but now most Episcopalians would identify as progressives and most of the religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, are, are probably refugees from mainline Protestantism and they've left the Republican party for the Democrat party.
2: I mean, to, to note something real quick on that, we're talking the day after, two days after. So Pete Buttigieg, who's running for president, yeah. is an Episcopalian. And Eric Erickson, who's a conservative pundit, I guess, yeah. sent out, I think, a pretty noxious tweet saying that. You know, Episcopalians like Buttigieg don't know anything about the the roots of of Christianity, right? Um, and and you, I think in that you really saw the the political realignment, um, yeah, of both like the merging of a certain kind of Christianity and right wingness, right? A sense that if you are outside some of its political commitments, um, you are you are no longer Christian, but but obviously also this idea that Episcopalianism
1: is now a, a liberal faith, right? But it, I mean, politically it's it's become more aligned with Episcopalians are much more likely to be Democrats. And on the other side, evangelicals and, and church going Catholics who used to be both a rock ribbed democratic constituency, you know, Catholics in the industrial north and evangelicals in the south have come into the Republican Party. And I think in a very slow motion way, they are bringing some of their inherited political traditions into the Republican Party. Uh, and that means more of a. I'm sure a political scientist would call invoke populism that is part of the evangelical tradition in America. And on the more intellectual side, maybe the Ross Douthat, myself and others are bringing this slightly more statist, communitarian, Catholic thought in our very small way into the Republican Party. If those trends continue, I, I I could see a Republican Party in the future that's a little bit more like Tucker Carlson that sort of looks at major corporations as a potential enemy and a, a, a kind of Blairite, Clintonite, center-left party that is defending the kind of inheritance of the – that's keeping the dream of the 90s alive in the Democratic Party. That might happen, but again, if Sanders is nominated and wins the presidency, maybe that all changes. Maybe the, um, that makes the Democratic Party more oriented toward uh, economic issues and more oriented toward the poor, the working class, and the downwardly mobile. So so I think there's kind of a race in both parties among allied intellectuals to make their party the more populist party economically. Democrats are winning on the policy suggestions and Republicans might be winning at least right now on the voter profile.
2: That that's a strange thing I I think to say. I mean don't most people in the bottom half of the income distribution vote democratic?
1: Most do now currently, but the movement is is interesting you know right now what you're what i think is coming about is the democratic party becoming a party of the very upwardly mobile and the poor and people who are in the middle or on the downward slope are heading into the gop but, but again and this, the young and the non-white right and when you look at the young and the non-white you're
2: looking at a lot of voters who tend to be lower on that income scale
1: yes so I, mean,
2: I I feel like I I'm pushing on this a little bit because I think sometimes there's a it's like economic populism is represented by the white working class but then if you look at people who are actually in the working class it's a lot of people who don't fit that 52-year-old machinist in right. West Virginia profile.
1: No that's that's very true. I mean those jobs in, are are going away. I mean I but uh there is a cultural disconnect too though. I mean I mean, it's been years since I worked in a I worked in a factory years ago when I was in college a chemical factory. It was by far the most diverse workplace I've ever been in. People got along very well took took care of each other on the shop floor, which could be dangerous but there were there were a couple of striking things about it, like if you were looking at it politically uh one because it was working class, it had no sense of the mannerly way we talk about identity or uh, issues of political correctness or polit- politeness in in the class you and I are currently in. And on the the level of voting, the white voters tended to be uh, Republican and kind of populist in orientation and in attitude politically. And recent immigrants, non-whites tended to be democratic. But they could be alienated in some ways by, um, you know, if you if you tried to, uh, you know, if a well-meaning, even if a well-meaning Republican from HR tried to correct the the way men were relating to each other in the shop floor, it would be pretty alienating, alienating to the workers. Maybe it's not a vote-moving issue, but we'll see.
2: I, th- I think I think all that's true. I mean, I think uh, Matt Iglesias calls this the Great Awakening. Yeah. And and to me, a lot of politics right now is becoming cut on the line of. Do you feel comfortable and excited about the demographic changes in the country and the ways that that might change power in politics, or do you feel kind of scared and alienated by it? Right. And it doesn't mean that politicians can't communicate those changes or shape them in ways that are more or less comforting to people. I think Obama actually was probably the most masterful politician, um, arguably that we've ever had, but certainly in in, in my lifetime at both representing and embodying a, and, and discussing these changes in a way that was inclusive. But even him and, and you and I may disagree a bit on on the nature of his communication, but but I would say even him, even he left the country significantly more divided on this than it was because, you know, he, he was who he was and he had the skin color he had. And, and that changed politics in in measurable and, and, and serious ways. And something I think with Bernie Sanders and all these folks is that there's a lot you can do as a politician, but there's also the structure of America and American politics itself. And you can frame it as a conflict of national identity. I, I think that one way to look at this is there's going to be a real fight between a national identity of America as what makes America, America, is it a place that changes and grows and brings new people into it and is always trying to perfect itself and become a more equal and tolerant nation? And what makes America America is more who we've been and what we've been, a sort of more Donald Trumpian view of it. So you can kind of, I think, you can actually frame it in terms of a certain kind of debate over nationalism. But more, I just think it's a debate over over change and it's going to end up absorbing Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden and, and anyone else who who ends up running within its currents. They're going to have to make their accommodations to it. And, and as they do, you know, even a Bernie Sanders will end up alienating more of those people than I think some pure class-based analyses might suggest. Yeah, it's it's
1: tough to know. I mean, I think I would only challenge, I mean, on a facial level, the the analysis that Barack Obama's race drove Republicans to this, to this place that, you know, it's, it's kind of an odd argument, right? That, I mean, certainly opposition to Obama could correlate with nasty racial attitudes, right? And just as, you know, opposition to any political figure would, will make use of their identity in, in ways that are hateful. But it is a weird argument to say that, like, People who hated Barack Obama so much that they voted for him twice and then vote didn't vote for Hillary Clinton, like you know i I wonder sometimes that there's a lot uh, how much of our politics and our our view of like what's at stake in our politics is really just an epiphenomenon of the fact that Clinton didn't run a great campaign and has never been a great candidate, right like if if another Democrat had been nominated, you know, we might be talking having a completely different discussion about. Uh, America's future, (laughs) you know, might be more economic in nature than than about identity and anxiety about it. I'm not sure.
2: Look, I I definitely uh, if Martin O'Malley had been nominated (laughs) and had won a kind of banal election over even Donald Trump, I I do think we'd be having a different conversation. But but to stand up for the social science again, um, there's a lot of social science produced even before the 2016 election, which shows racially resentful whites leaving the Democratic Party for the Republican Party and shows more racially liberal people of all races moving into the Democratic Party. And there's just no doubt like it is. I don't think given the evidence we have, it's arguable. And this is one of these places where I push for evidence because I do think it disciplines our intuitions that Obama further aligned the parties around the issue of race. I mean, it just happened. He, you know, and, and and it was downstream of him too. You know, I think like one of the good arguments about this is to say, well, Republicans really hated Bill Clinton too. But if you look at the Clinton healthcare bill, how you felt about race didn't change how you felt about his bill. And if you look at Obamacare, it did like dramatically. It's no, it's big. true.
1: I mean the the argument that I guess people are having that are more into the the social science literature would be the one that I think Eric Kaufman has advanced, that American whites or British whites who feel more within race warmness don't necessarily feel outgroup hostility at higher levels than racial liberals. But I uh, (laughs) – My book my book abjures social science because in some ways there are so many people doing it that I, I thought while they're zigging, I'm gonna zag toward the literary and the historical.
2: Well, I'm actually I'm interviewing Eric in a couple of days for the podcast. So I will not make you have the conversation I'm gonna do. Right. Have with him. No, 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 exactly. Right. <laughs> like
1: I read his book and and at the end of it I was like overwhelmed by the data and I felt, you know, personally like I didn't um I wasn't sure if I knew more when I came out afterwards or i was less confused
2: i mean one of the things with all this is we're inside the story now you know like there's data but the data is it's all incomplete because I mean, the story isn't and never will be. complete, And things are going to go in ways that even if we're interpreting the data correctly, we're not drawing the right, you know, extrapolations from it. And so, I mean, it gives you a sense of certainty one one shouldn't have. Right. Like all the people who thought Obama's election meant we were entering a post-racial period. And it's like, what better data could you have than an African-American being elected to the presidency? And then he's followed by Donald Trump. Um, You know, I'm not saying there's nobody who thought who I think had a. It, at this point, what we'd see is a more correct view of this, and and understood racial backlash should follow racial progress, but there are plenty of perfectly good social scientists who didn't. So, so data can only get you right. so far. Well, and
1: also, there's there's, you know, sometimes I think one of my objections to the the social science approach is I'm not sure we all always have good mechanisms for sorting out people's motivations when they answer these surveys uh, on on their attitudes. You know, so for instance. I'm a conservative. I live in New York State. You know, a pollster calls me up and starts polling my attitudes. Now, it's an anonymous poll, but while you're answering the questions on a survey, I think it's a totally normal human motivation to think, well, I don't want these answers, the answers I give, to be used as a license for politicians I dislike to move against my interests. And so I think that's why we get so many um, surveys and polls where people seem to be giving a partisan script that they've inherited even when it makes no sense, right? So like famously a few years ago, I think PPP did a poll on whether Republicans wanted to bomb Agraba, the city in the movie Aladdin, and um, many Republicans were for this. And then someone on, on the other side of the polling world did a poll of Democrats and, you know, do you want refugees from Agrabah? And of course they pulled yes. And if someone called me up and asked me, you know, do you believe Andrew Cuomo has horns um, and worships Satan in the the comfort of my anonymity, you know, would I give a pro Cuomo answer? I would like to think I would just based on fidelity to the truth. But I do wonder how many – how often we're we're pulling people – the act of pulling itself automatically – calls to mind, partisan or social scripts that we deploy for our use rather than actually reporting the truth about our feelings.
2: I'd say a couple of things on that. So one, I think troll polling is bad, um, <laughs> what you're talking about with what PPP did. It's funny, but it's bad. Um, people shouldn't do it. Two, I'd say wh- what you're saying is people essentially align to what they believe their party wants them to be, what they believe their group needs from them um, in giving answers. And it's not their deepest feelings, certainly not the feelings you would get from them if you sat down and spoke about things for an hour or right. two. But I actually think there's more signal in that noise than, than you're giving credit for. I mean, the way a lot of people approach politics is they fall in line behind their party. I mean, we've seen that very right. much with Donald Trump, but you see it all over. Um, of course. You know, I mean, look at the flips on how people feel about Russia in the past couple of years. Yes. So in some ways, when pollsters end up eliciting that response, I think there's something true to the criticism that this isn't our truest self. This isn't our most deliberative self. But then I think there's also something very, um, that it's showing something about how we actually end up engaging with the world. It's not like our truest, most deliberative self is the one that channels into our political preferences, much as the the people we support. I mean, most people, they don't care that much about politics at all. So, you know, they kind of have a general throw in with a candidate who who works for them and, and and then they go about their lives. But then the the final thing, I guess this is like my big, my big rousing defense <laughs> of, of of the wonks in social science. Um, there's no doubt that all of our data about the world is imperfect. Uh, you know, I'm always trying to get people to to recognize this difference between the kind of data we collect in physics, and maybe the physicists are like, no, no, that data is terrible. But the kind of data we collect in physics, where, you know, there are things you can objectively say about the world, and the kind of data that is like is irredeemably poisoned by the fact that you are just observing society and society's complex you can't disaggregate things and run the experiment a different way and and all of that and it's a reason to be data skeptical but i I do think sometimes people use it as a reason to say fuck it i'm going with my intuition that's Um, true and you know knowing about the world is a hard like it's a hard thing um and i i would certainly like plead guilty to I'm sure headlines I've written and so on are, are overly declaratory about what some piece of evidence or another says, um, you know, and how seriously we should take it. But but nevertheless, I do think sometimes there's a, a tendency to you wanna like, it's like the complexity of the world freaks us out and like we wanna, we wanna just like step away from it. And then it's like, well, you can't fully trust polls. So I'm gonna go with kind of what I want to believe. And then I think we end up in a place where we're probably we're probably further, not closer, from the truth. Well,
1: you know, so my response to this, and I'm going to circle it back to to my book for a second, is that you know one of the the kind of arguments I make uh, historically, and and I guess I could even intensify it, was that the kind of revolutionaries they talk about and that inspired me in writing this book and whose lives I kind of immersed myself in. Uh, you know, while my wife was pregnant with our first child, and in the first months of my my child's life, you know, many of them had, you know, a view of the world where, you know, for instance, there's this one uh, historian I talk about, Owen McNeil, who was very much trying to to uh, recover Ireland's own sense of its history, and you know, in some ways, save it from these pious legend tellers and 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 so on and And put it on something firmer, and he was opposed to an armed rebellion in nineteen sixteen because he took a very calculated view and he he said, um in one letter, I think to Patrick Pierce, another character i I talk about in the book a lot, you know that uh Irish nationalists were satisfying themselves their own desires and and trying to soothe their own frustrations." about their very difficult political situation and they were kind of consoling themselves with slogans that didn't quite match up with reality. And um, When the time came when he found out that there was a revolutionary putsch on and that ahead of this revolutionary putsch, there had been a capture of weapons off the coast of Ireland that were coming in from Germany, you know, he, he judged uh, as Any battlefield commander should that, you know, this will be a a total botch of a revolution. Uh, It will fail militarily and um, somewhat informed by the just war tradition, he would conclude it's also therefore immoral to do. And yet I talk about in some ways, and it's difficult for me to accept too, that actually the romantics were more correct about what effect this action they would take would have on uh, Irish political life. So in some ways, like I will acknowledge everything that uh, the wonks do, that the technocrats do. We need expertise to help us understand the world, but sometimes people who have this strong intuition about where politics is going or what effect their actions would have that you can't quite see in any available data sets. Sometimes they are right. Um, that they shock us, and that's you know, in, in a sense, I was attracted to this history precisely because it rhymed with my own sense that a lot of the political debate we have in 2019 is is constricted by this this you know essentially a cult of expertise and 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 the mystery of kind of Irish nationalism a century ago, the Easter Rising. Is that the balladeers, the romantics, these poets and language activists, these people who launched a rebellion that failed in six days and which had a tremendous human cost to it as well, were right about the political situation. And they accomplished something that really uh, at the time people had in many ways had given up on uh, a kind of goal for the for the Irish nation that seemed unobtainable. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, maybe I've picked one of the few things in history where this is true, where, um, where the romantics were right, but it, it at least comforts me to know that sometimes they are.
2: Oh, I don't, it's funny because that's just to me, it's, look, there are questions you can bring data to bear on, right? We were, we were discussing earlier, why did people vote for Donald Trump? Uh (laughs) Um, and I think, I think we have a lot of data there and then there's questions you can't, right? Which is, is it worth it to you to try to launch a doomed bloody rebellion to be the spark that lights the flame? Right. Yeah. Like can't, That's not, it's
1: not, but, a, it's not a, can't go to a university for that. Right. No, well, um, you know, that's a, that's a different question. But, but, but also, but the question, but the, so the question I, I would say then though, is that does the way that we engage in politics, right? Like we both said at the beginning of this conversation that we're, we're moved, um, In a sense, by moral concern and moral action, we're impelled by this sense that, okay, we both have talents to offer the world insights and brains to apply to the problems of our common life. And does our formation in this world where we uh, look for just the available data sets, where we look at markets as a judge and arbiter of so many questions in political life, Does that world shape us in a way where we can't see the opportunities to act that actually are more dramatic and effective that men who, in a sense, are leading with their hearts would go if they could find a way to license themselves? So what I want to try to
2: think about that for a second and what it means, because basically i want to t- i want
1: you to take up arms against injustice <laughs> yeah,
2: but but i actually but i i want to take that seriously right because i think something you could say you know there's certain set of commitments i hold that the scale of the damage being done could take you in a direction of very radical action like
1: ecoterrorism right um, like
2: that would ecoterrorism um but but also you know i would say around um animal suffering which is something i care about a lot um and i think that the like the the level of the moral atrocity is almost beyond imagining mm. and you can like it's you know very easy to say the system is not moving fast enough it's time to go outside the system and obviously there have been moments of that in in in, in history that have turned out you know at least reasonably well right, right. Uh, like in on some level when you go back to the american revolution the the triggers of it are laughable um, you know compared to you have a, a community of people holding slaves getting upset about taxes and you know well, well where is violence really justified there um, and 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 so one I do want to say these are hard questions, right? Mm. you know if the political system is not going to act on climate change, then what is demanded? By you know the the people we are leaving this world to. um you know what is you know is it to 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 give up? Uh, I mean obviously to, what's demanded is not to give up, but but is it to say like all right we're just going to keep trying even if we know it's going to fail, or is it to to start launching rebellion? Is it for some of these countries that are on the front lines who can blasting sulfates into the atmosphere and just let the rich countries deal deal with the fallout as they try to like cool the as they try to cool the the, the climate directly? You know some of this comes from a belief that working on and through these systems has been better than the alternatives, that a lot of these revolutions fail. In most cases, um, yes. Not only fail, they don't just fail. They often backfire in horrible ways. When you unleash these passions, you can't control yeah. them, right? That's a little bit what I was saying earlier, that one thing that frustrates me sometimes about, about the discussion around people who who try to take a, an empirical approach to some of these problems is the idea that there aren't emotions there, as opposed to the like a respect for the the constant effort to to discipline those emotions I mean I was hearing you say that uh you know you didn't you didn't like the feeling that the social scientist would tell you not to miss your dad I was like no social scientist is gonna tell you not to miss your dad right that isn't that that that, that isn't what the that isn't what the argument is and so um but that said i I think that in a lot of places I come down on the side of there's a tremendous amount of injustice in the world and in the system. And also over the past couple of hundred years, that injustice is being made. We have had the kind of fastest improvement in overall welfare that we've ever had. And so like in a kind of Stephen Pinkerish way, you gotta be very careful about what to throw out. Mm. And so I guess the question I would throw back at you is, and I recognize this is the big counterfactual question, but imagine that revolution had never happened. right? Imagine there hadn't been the Irish revolutionary movement. Mm-hmm. Imagine Irish was still either some kind of British protectorate. Um, yeah, they'd be in the union, right? Was,
1: they'd, they'd be they'd be the great great uh, the union of Ireland and Great Britain, right?
2: Right, and you know, and, and Ireland would be um, in the EU as it is, mm-hmm. right? And what would be like? T- tell me about the loss, right? Don't don't just tell me about the gain of the re- of the revolution. But okay, if there hadn't been that blood, if those parent those children hadn't lost their fathers if there hadn't been all that terrorism right like i sit here from from the place we're in and like i'm i'm reasonably happy there's an ireland i don't see any reason to question in that outcome but also if there wasn't like what 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 would be so terrible what would be so different you know there's no independent texas right you know some people in texas really think that's a problem but i don't um (laughs) so anyway i'm not trying to erase ireland but I, i i like because you're because you're making the argument this was such an important event tell me what would be lost if it hadn't happened
1: you know so it's an interesting question my own view is that you know and you have to to bear down into the specifics my own view is that even after the act of union uh, at the beginning of the 19th century you know this is the the attempt by the british to finally like okay let's incorporate ireland as a part of this united kingdom fully in the same way that Scotland and Wales are. And so you're going to elect uh, ministers of parliament from Ireland. Eventually we're going to uh, give Catholics the vote and the right to enter any profession they want to. And eventually, the the British state is even going to fund the seminary in in Maynooth for Catholic priests, Uh, an astonishing thing to do when some of the prime ministers of Great Britain were themselves deeply um, prejudiced and anti-Catholic. So, what would be lost? First, I think uh, what would be lost is democratic legitimacy for government in, in Ireland. You know, essentially, in the years leading up to the revolution, for three decades, Ireland had been voting for a, sep- a nationalist party, the Irish Parliamentary Party, whose goal was to establish, uh, re-establish a parliament in Dublin um, that was underneath the parliament in Westminster, and on a fundamental level. If say Texas voted for three decades, uh, almost you know ninety percent turning into Congress, uh, Texas secessionists, I would question whether we had democracy if we didn't actually say, okay, you can go. You know, I don't think people should be forced to vote on their right to self-government every year for for decades or half century at a time uh, if they want to leave.
2: But but I, I'm sorry, just to push on, I mean, we really do have an example in this country of what was clearly a popular secessionist movement. Not only did we not let them vote themselves out, but we fought a bloody war to stop them from leaving. And I think most people look back on that as a, as a fine moment for us.
1: That's true. Although I will say this, the Irish parliamentary party did not launch uh, a bloody rebellion immediately, whereas the South did. So, that that's one thing that would be uh, one thing that would be lost would be democratic legitimacy of Ireland whose cause I think is much more reputable than the Confederacy's. Second, what would be lost, of course, is British state making uh, or or Great Britain's state making precluded the preservation of Irish culture and language, and that's why um, you know revolutionaries like Pierce were so obsessed with expunging the uh, English education system of in Ireland. And replacing it with something that preserved their language, their heroes, their saints in the minds of the Irish people. I don't think Ireland would be as prosperous as it is today if it was, you know, essentially a backwater of the United Kingdom. But on a more fundamental level, I mean, the question could be flipped back on you. I mean, I talk about an encounter with a man, Randy Palmer, who was a member of the Kiowa Nation. Um uh, a Native American nation, which has lost its language, which has lost any you know uh, effective truly effective political sovereignty or independence from the United States, is there a loss that we don't have a Kiowa nation anymore? Is there a loss that the world lacks the Kiowa language uh and culture? You know some people say, fine, you know, nations just die, you know we don't have Hittites anymore or, or some of these other nations that we read about in the Bible that were eliminated.
2: I just, I, I think I would push on, on the comparison here. I think there's a tremendous loss that we wiped out the overwhelming majority of the Native Amor- Americans, took their land, and then forcibly destroyed their cultures. Like, yes, I, I think that not only just a loss, but an injustice. I mean, to go back to my view of the world, we contracted, partially in our nationalism, our circle of empathy and put them outside yeah. of it and made them subhuman. And not only was there a loss to them, but there's a loss in what it did to us. I mean, we we are we are built on a graveyard. Um, and I think it's a stain that we do a tremendous amount in our national history to avert our eyes from. But it's it's a little bit um I, I take your point on the languages piece of this. And, you know, and I do think things are lost um as cultural traditions uh die out. Uh and, you know, and I take the point of people who say, like, there's a homogenization of a, of a place like America. So if we're, if we're staying in the realm of more peaceful, um, of, of more peaceful uh, appropriation, so to speak, or more more peaceful expansions of nationalism, you know, I I don't know. Right. I don't know. I think there's a gain to the groups that come together. Right. France is composed of a lot of different individual, um, you know, units that, that eventually became one and over time um, gave up a lot of their individuality to become the nation. I mean, to a lot, to a large extent, the nation state is a is a construct we use to attach people to a new story as their old stories fade. Um, And sometimes we do a better and worse job of that. But 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 I do
1: think I think it's complex. It's true, too, that, you know, there are things, uh, you know, there are Irish cultural preservationists, right, that would say. You know, hey, we created this language preservation movement, but actually, what it produced in the 20th century was a standard form of the language that was leeching away and destroying the the actual native existing dialects, right? Um, so, yeah, it, it is a question, right? It, it, it is a mystery, and I don't think that nationalism. I, I, first of all, I don't even quite think nationalism is a political philosophy that stands on its own. I think these are these, these are his. Phenomenon that can only only be really described historically, but it is a question. You know, it, uh, there's a loss when we lose the uh, when we're losing the language of Brittany, um, the Breton language, which is another Celtic language that was on the the north western coast of France. Is the gain worth it of incorporating Bretons into France, which is a great nation? I think it's up. Uh, you know, these are verdicts that are won in history, won and lost in history. And I think it's precisely the incredibly high stakes is what impelled uh, Irish revolutionaries a century ago to launch a bloody, doomed, romantic rebellion, right? Because it, it, it did seem to them like the nationhood of Ireland could be extinguished, that it would just, this island nation that had its own history and traditions would be totally absorbed in Great Britain. I think it's still going to be a worry going forward um, because the language shift did happen. Ireland is an Anglophone nation and the United States and Britain exert tremendous cultural influence over over Ireland. and, And there may be a feeling in the future that they need another cultural revival to kind of establish the boundaries of their home and their political freedom of action and even the, the freedom of action for their imagination of what their nation could become. So, so yeah, I, th- I think there's not only because the losses are permanent. One thing I, I didn't mention in the book is Patrick Pierce talked about the durability of nations, that nations can survive incorporation into empires over centuries, that they rise up again, but when they are dead and gone, they they are truly dead and gone, right? There will never be a Hittite nation again, unless unless you create like robots and program them with all the knowledge we have about Hittites in the University of Chicago. Um, you know, there those things are when they're gone, they're gone forever. And I don't begrudge people who uh, find something in that in their national story, in their traditions so valuable that they would fight for it, that they would die for it. One of the things I think is interesting in in this perspective is there's a tension in American life right
2: now about cultural preservation, and it tends to fall along these political correctness, social justice lines. You'll have people saying, well, when you take that sound or when you take that food or when you take that garb dress, you're appropriating from this culture and you're not paying proper respect to it and you are um, diluting it. And then you often have people primarily, and that, that tends to be on the left, and I think you have people much more frequently on the right who say, we're a melting pot. There's value in adopting Americanness in us all becoming one. Um, you, know, the, you know, the value of America is like that we all take from each other. And, you know, you shouldn't be holding on to your own language. You shouldn't be holding on to your own dress. You shouldn't be holding on to really anything but your own, you know, and only here in certain cases, religious traditions. And so- mm. I feel like this is a very live question, but it doesn't tend to fall on the lines of, um, like, the people who respect tradition versus the people who are, uh, you know, more, more open to change. It tends to fall on the lines of the people who... Find their find a very deep attachment to a certain concept of Americanness, uh, a concept of Americanness that is more rooted, as Eric Hoffman would say, in, in an ethnonationalist tradition, versus the people who don't and who want the the concept of Americanness to be more a concept of of, of inclusion, um, but not a concept necessarily always of assimilation, and. I don't really have a – I don't come down on a super strong side of this of this debate, but it strikes me as an interesting tension in in, in what you're saying. I mean, when I look at sort of the way conservatism covers these controversies, it seems to have a very strong lean towards people letting things go to be part of a more broad-based American-ness.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's definitely a um, – you know, and it's funny, Rihan Salam, who blurbs this book and who – is the son of immigrants and who wrote a book about uh, making the case for immigration restriction in order to preserve a melting pot. He loves the assimilative quality of America and celebrates it to the full. And he's even though he blurbs my book, he has given me a side eye sometimes about this, you know, almost dual loyalty of culture that um, I obviously feel and have. Um, I don't think the tension is resolvable because you can look at it, you know, when I look at the way many liberals think about diversity, there's a kind of paradox within it, right? That um, on the one hand, the very things that created human diversity are often what liberals find most scary, right? Which is stuff like exclusive religious truth claims, you know? My religion is true, yours is false. I'm championing my religion, and that's how this religious tradition is going to survive into history. And liberals find that threatening, right? That uh, you know that in the seeds of this is a kind of willingness to exterminate all other religions. But this, but uh, you know, physical separation, you know, helped to create these ideas of different ethnicities, different languages. And national traditions that people want to celebrate when they come here, but as people do come to America, whether we want them to or not, in in, in a sense, they both contribute to America, but then they are – they assimilate into America as well and they, these traditions start to die, right? Like if my children and my great-grandchildren and beyond keep living in America, the chances of them preserving, you know – My mother's devotion to the Irish language and my budding devotion to it are almost nil. So that just is a tension in it, is that we we love diversity. I think liberals especially love diversity when it prevents the emergence of a kind of authoritarian nativist culture. But in fact, the diversity probably was the product in history of an authoritarian nativist culture uh, somewhere else. So yeah, I don't think there's I don't think there's actually a way of resolving this. Its just will as long as there are humans, there will be cultural conflict um and negotiation, if you want a, a less militant um, metaphor for for that that trade-off in human life.
2: I think the complexity is a good place to to end here. So let me ask you the the final question, which is what are three books you recommend to the audience that have mattered to you that you think others should read?
1: I'd be remiss if I didn't mention uh, a book by G.K. Chesterton called The Everlasting Man, which not only converted me back to the Catholic faith, this English Catholic, but also has kind of been a model, I think, for my work and my career, in the sense that he was zagging while others zigged. Um, he – he, um, it's just a a kind of long literary essay of – response to HG Wells and other modern writers uh, of the time about the history of the world and what what actually drives it so the everlasting man would be one the I'd be remiss if I didn't mention because I it inspired this book uh, the political essays of Patrick Pierce uh, who this Irish nationalist firebrand kind of a a dandy and an athlete, a very unlikely person to kind of take up arms. As you read them, you kind of trace his transformation from a cultural nationalist who wrote these wonderful and evocative stories, short stories in Irish about willowy women in the west rural part of Ireland, to a firebrand who is exulting in the idea of bloodshed and uh, killing the English. In a way, I I find that I I try to use his essays in a way to intensify some of the insights of Edmund Burke or other conservatives. Um, And the other important book I would say is um, an influential book to me, although I've come to disagree with it more and more over time, is a book by James Burnham, who is a predecessor of mine at National Review. Um, That sounds very grandiose of me. But he wrote a book called The Machiavellians in which he kind of explicates uh, the thought of several Italian political theorists who he, he thinks of as realists when it comes to politics and power and um, kind of theorizes that the emergence of liberty in the modern world is really the, the emergence of a balance of elite forces that without a kind of balance of elite interests – Um, An elite will run roughshod over um, not just the majority, but everyone. Um, I reject his book in some ways because he he kind of, it has an almost nihilistic heart where he he views all elites as ruling by force and fraud. Uh, And I don't think that's entirely true. I I do think it's possible for elites and political leadership to um, endeavor to govern justly and uh, by the truth as they best know it. Uh, so I have, I have a little bit more hope for humanity than I think James Burnham did when he wrote that book, but it's still very powerful.
2: Michael Brendan Dougherty, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Michael Brendan Dougherty. Um, I enjoyed that conversation a lot. I hope you did too. There, there's something I've been thinking about since we had it, and I don't even know if I'm able to communicate this correctly, but but it's something I notice a lot on the podcast. I think like I have the experience on on this show of... You read someone, and and they have a worldview, or they have a worldview about your worldview, and and the two are really distinct. You know, it's wonks versus populists, or you know, I don't want to say Republicans and Democrats because I do think those are pretty distinct. But but there's a way in which we draw categories, um, particularly in writing. I, I think writing, as much as it it feels, oftentimes like it is a space that rewards thinking, it's also a space that rewards very sharp drawing of lines, Um, certainly nonfiction writing and certainly political writing. And so I often have the experience of bringing someone on, someone from the socialist left or from the populist right or somebody who thinks differently about identity than I do. And when we talk, um, neither my worldview nor theirs are as totalizing as they would seem if you just read our writing. And I don't have a grand view on this, and it's not to say that that people are are, um, coming on and and soft-pedaling it. I don't think they are. It's more to say that something it's made me respectful of is the way writing creates categories in the world that are sharper than those categories appear, and that it's possibly something to to think about in writing um, when you're reading people's writing or even when you're doing your own. About the ways in which, if you had a conversation, uh, some of the the lines wouldn't be as sharply drawn. Um, and it turns out that the the trade-offs people would be making are less total and less clear that, 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 than it comes out to be. I do wonder um, how much of our disagreements are not fake. I am not I want to be very clear that I'm not saying that, but do are heightened by the context in which they play out. The zero-sumness, which political competition requires, right? If your elections are zero-sum, as I never tire of repeating. And the, the effort to make points clearly and crisply and comprehensibly that attaches to writing, such that those points become much more self-contained and much sharper in ways that Denies or erases the fuzziness that is inherent in all of our thinking, and the ways in which even even the schools of thought we choose to opt into don't always mean that we've abandoned as much of the schools of thought we're not part of as it can sometimes appear. So I don't know. This is something I'm reflecting on a little bit. Uh, I, I wish I were better at writing in, in ways that allowed for that messiness. And whenever I try, it seems like the piece itself is just messy, and then I get it edited and <laughs> it doesn't survive. Um, but I don't know, it's a real, it's a real constant uh, challenge of the show to realize how much sharper the disagreements seem off of it than on it. And I don't think that's because they necessarily are. I think it's because where a disagreement is happening has a lot to do with the content of it, much more so than, than, than we like to believe. Anyway, so that is the show. Um, thank you to Topher Ruth for uh, engineering in Berkeley, to Jeffrey Geld for being my producer. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.